You're listening to Inside the Boardroom, powered by Onboard. I'm your host, Adam Wire. Today, we chat with Megan Anzelk, Chief Data and Analytics Officer for 3ARC Advisory. She's also a speaker, analyst, and consultant on the use of AI in organizations. Megan will discuss artificial intelligence, the boardroom's role with AI, and more. Today, we're speaking with Megan Anzelk, a, a doctor of uh, physics and astronomy. Um, she's going to work today's topic is, is AI and generative AI and, and data governance. And uh, Megan certainly is a, is a great uh, expert to help us inform uh, our thinking and, and point of view there. Uh, she holds a, a PhD in physics and astro- astronomy from uh, Northwestern. Currently, she's the chief data and analytics officer for 3ARC Advisory. She's also an advisory board member for several up-and-coming tech firms. Uh, she's the former head of global data and analytics for Spencer & Stewart, which is a global executive search and leadership advisory forum. Um, she's also served as a board member for several nonprofits, including the Chicago Literacy Alliance. And uh, most notably, she's a speaker, analyst, and consultant on the use of AI in organizations. Megan, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Thanks so much, Josh. I'm really happy to be here. Great. Um, and so we'll include links to your uh, your your, your uh, LinkedIn profile and, and company in the show notes for anybody who wants to learn more. Um, but you and I have had several conversations about AI, and, and obviously it's becoming a, a more and more important topic for executive leaders, uh, leaders of organizations, and certainly in the, in the boardroom. Um, but I, I'd like to start with just some level setting um, of, you know, when we say AI or artificial intelligence, what do we mean by that? And, and why is it becoming such an important topic in, in today's business atmosphere? Yeah, yeah. So let's do the, the high level definitions first, and then we can talk about why it's important. So three terms that I'd like to define. So the first is artificial intelligence itself really encompasses an umbrella of a number of things within it. So it's a pretty broad definition. And it really is about any sorts of things that we traditionally think of as human capabilities uh, really being done by a machine. So having a machine sort of mimic the kinds of things that humans do, right? And that is a very broad and somewhat vague definition. Um, within that umbrella, there are two other terms. So the second term is machine learning or ML, and that's really algorithms applied to data uh, doing pattern recognition. And so it can be very sophisticated math on very complex data, but at the end of the day, it is math on data. That's really what machine learning is. The third term that you talked about in the opening is generative AI. And again, this falls within the broader AI umbrella. And generative AI is really about creating new content off of some body of historical content. And this can be in very different media forms. So the one that's been most talked about is ChatGPT, which is one of the text generation tools. But you can generate audio, video, sound, some music, um, images, right? There's a really broad range of kinds of things that that you can create. But generative AI falls under the the new content creation piece, um, which is newer under the bigger umbrella of AI, which has been, parts of that have been around for decades. So in terms of why it's important to businesses, we've really seen an evolution of AI through different kinds of organizations over the last few decades. And and we'll get into some of the details of where that's shown up and how it's come to be in different kinds of organizations and industries. But really in this moment, you know, certainly there's some of this that is a hype cycle. So not everything is as terrible or as amazing and sort of silver bullet as what you might think from reading just mainstream headline news. Um, but it is, these are really are capabilities that have the potential to impact organizations in large, positive ways. And so it is a topic that while we may be in a hype cycle, it's not one that's going away, right? This is a set of capabilities that are going to continue to impact organizations. And so those companies that haven't been giving thought to this yet, to me, my guidance would be this is now the time to really start getting educated and understand how this will uh, impact your business both today and in the coming years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that AI has been within been used within uh, organizations for for decades now. 
most people are probably most familiar with uh, the product you mentioned, ChatGPT, which just uh, launched in a public beta in, in uh, December of uh, 22. Um, so just under a year from where we're talking now, um, can you give me some examples of where AI has already been uh, within use in, in organizations or sectors? Yeah, so the, the start of my career was in the property casualty insurance industry, and that's an industry that even when I joined it was already using uh, machine learning type capabilities and some of the earlier pieces of AI um, and, and had been for probably a decade before I started in the industry. And, and so you see use cases where it's been used where there's large amounts of data available and where you can distinguish patterns and have the machines make decisions that are in line with the decisions humans would have made, but really doing it at scale. So the earliest use cases in property casualty insurance were around pricing of insurance products, and particularly those products that you and I use as consumers. So our uh, personal auto policies, the premiums we pay, are and have been for a very long time uh, entirely generated automatically. There is no human in the loop. They are completely algorithmically determined um, because you can go and get a quote you know, in a few seconds and pay for a policy very quickly. That's all algorithmically driven. A couple of other quick use cases that have been around for a long time is around fraud identification. So when you get fraud alerts on your phone from your credit card company, again, all algorithmically driven. Um, spam identification in email, right? We don't even see as much spam as we did a decade ago or so, in large part because those algorithms continue to advance uh, and refine to be able to better and better identify spam coming into your inbox. Um, and then certainly within the financial sector, quantitative trading has been around for a very long time. Uh, things like high-frequency trading shops and other applications within the financial sector around, again, that, that kind of pricing of financial instruments and how do you make money um, from some of the different viewpoints of what the risks are and what the future is going to look like in that space. So those are other areas where algorithmically driven decisions have been in place for a long time. Mm -hmm. So whereas before in the, in the property and casualty insurance example, where an actuary would have an actuarial table with all these data inputs and they would do the math to, to arrive at, uh, you know, an algorithm for the, the wider customer base that's now being automated through artificial intelligence. Are there any human checks and balances on those systems? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the role of actuaries still plays a big part in the insurance industry. So I don't want to take away from that in any way, but it definitely has evolved. And so what you have is really this, this hybrid of these advanced statistical algorithms being able to help you determine how to segment customers in really granular ways. So Josh, why is your auto policy $20 different than me, right? You and I live in different places. We drive different types of cars. Um, you and I may have different driving records. Uh, all of that sort of stuff plays into it. And then the actuarial teams are helping both with some of those definitions, but they're also helping make sure that the insurance company stays solvent overall so that the overall sort of base level of premium that's collected is accurate and appropriate they're partnering uh, very closely with the state departments of insurance around the rate filings and getting approvals for changes to what that might look like. They're helping the finance teams, right? There's still a huge role that they're playing in lots of different ways. So it really is this hybrid of the you know, more data science type domain with the actuarial domain, but also with the underwriting teams and the finance teams to say, what's the overall strategy? How does this fit in? What are some of the caps or guardrails we want to put in place? Um, all of those sorts of things, right, come together. So it's not that it's algorithms alone, but at the end of the day, once all of those players have come together, the price that you pay is determined in a highly automated way, right, predominantly driven by those risk segmentation algorithms. Mm -hmm. And as we kind of move into this era of what I would call almost democratized AI, where uh, almost any individual or business or organization can get a hold of these tools such as ChatGPT, uh, maybe you know other tools such as BARD or, or Microsoft's Copilot, 
Um, what are some industries or organizations do you see um, not, not necessarily ex experimenting with AI, but w what are some new business cases that are coming from this, uh, as you accurately put it, this hype cycle of AI? Yeah. So to me, one of the most um, exciting pieces about where we are right now is what you alluded to, the democratization of some of these capabilities. So even just a few years ago, you had to have a fairly sizable budget and team of, of data science uh, experts in your organization to be able to bring these capabilities to bear in a really meaningful way in an organization. That's really no longer true and is becoming less true over time. And generative AI actually helps accelerate some of that. So I don't want to get too in the weeds, but there are ways, particularly for unstructured data, which is a lot of what companies, most companies really haven't grappled with yet. Most organizations have large volumes of unstructured data sitting in documents, in forms, in you know, open text comments on their you know, websites or internal systems, and really being able to uh, systematically analyze and extract insights and value from that data really hasn't been grappled with for most organizations. The ones that have are the ones that are bigger and, and have had the budgets and team sizes to be able to really utilize those capabilities. Um, there are aspects of generative AI that can actually help accelerate that, where generative AI tools can do some of the automation of tagging of what kind of information is useful and what you know theme or topic does it fall into. And that means that the overall kind of budget and capacity you need to be able to use these is smaller today than it was even a few years ago. Um, so to me, that's the most interesting and exciting is that we're really at this point in time where organizations can and should be able to really extract value from these vast volumes of data that historically have, have generally laid dormant and really haven't been utilized. Um, so to me, that's one of the most exciting opportunities. Yeah, and as somebody who, who dabbles in, in both content and marketing and, and just a little bit of data science, I wouldn't call myself a data scientist at all. Uh, I, I think that's one of the most uh, kind of powerful examples, uh, you know, just anecdotally this, um, this week, uh, I was given a, a data set of user feedback experiences um, you know, uh, two, 300 comments. Um, I was able to, to upload that into ChatGPT and say, what are the top five themes uh, from this user feedback experience that I should be looking for? And within, you know, seconds, if not a few minutes at that, it provided a, a very accurate summary of, of what was, uh, you know, in a hundred different comments that would have taken me hours to analyze as a human. Um, I was able to save that time and, and get that information back very quickly. Um, however, kind of back to the actuarial example, how do we know that that data is accurate? Are there, uh, are there human kind of quality assurance factors that we need to um, come into play, especially with these publicly accessible models? Yeah, so ab absolutely the answer is yes. And the answer is yes for both the generative AI tools, but also the traditional AI that we were talking a bit about before. So I don't know of a single uh, data scientist who would sort of build a model and just launch it into production without a whole bunch of validation and cross-checks. And there's a lot of technical validation that can and should be done. And then also with your business partners, right? With your information security teams, with your compliance and regulatory folks, right? All of those folks come together to really make this possible. Um, when we're talking about generative AI, I would say that's a, that's a yes, you need to be doing those things. And perhaps with a bit more scrutiny and attention. Um, there's a lot of excitement about these capabilities, which is amazing and great. And I think we need to find ways to harness that excitement into things that are productive and actually useful for your organization. Um, but I think there's a bit, in my view, there's, there's organizations that are both moving too fast and too slow. So I've seen some who are sort of racing ahead saying, yes, let's use uh, generative AI capabilities and let's integrate those into some of our tools without, in my view, the appropriate pause around um, validating that what you're getting out of that is what you intended. How are you going to deal with hallucinations or bad information, right? Things like that. How do you put the appropriate guardrails in place? And then on the flip side, I'm seeing other organizations who are saying, I don't think AI is going to impact me at all. 
Um, I don't think I need to do anything. And I'm just going to take a wait and see approach. And I think there's a lot of risk in that as well, um, where there's a, a pretty big potential to fall behind. And if you're not educating yourself, right, to sort of put yourself in a position where it's going to be harder for you to decide what to do when it when you feel it does become a real meaningful capability for your organization. So so I feel like I'm seeing kind of two of the, you know, moving too fast and too slow in a couple different areas. So I do think that that kind of Goldilocks approach of how do you manage the risk appropriately while finding use cases where you really can use these capabilities um, is an important part of, of what, in my view, your strategy should be. Yeah, and I, I would absolutely agree with you. And one of the one of the ideas that that I've uh, come back to is that um, this, this is a technolo- technological disruption, but this isn't the first time that, that boards or leaders or executives have experienced a technological disruption. If you consider the the, the advent of the internet in the early two um, thousands, or the rise of e commerce, or um, the, the 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 growing risk of, of cybersecurity in our, our increasingly globally interconnected world. Um, there are um, templates and frameworks for addressing risk, uh, whether it's by the name of AI or any other uh, risk. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, absolutely. So, oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is a really interesting uh, in our, our kind of introductory discussions for this, this episode. I, I love this idea or this question that you posed. How do you know, uh, how will you know AI when it ap- appears in your organization? You mentioned hallucinations. You mentioned uh, the, the need for quality assurance and cross-checking. Um, but what, what is an example of AI kind of organically making its way into an or- organization? What, what, what were the hallmarks of AI versus a, a human-created uh, piece of content or data? Yeah, so that it can be very difficult to discern. So, so let's take a step back and talk a bit about, you know, kind of broader AI and more traditional AI approaches versus the generative. So absolutely boards should be asking their executive teams about how AI has been utilized in their organizations to date what they're doing today and what they plan to be doing tomorrow. So if boards don't have that understanding yet, right to your earlier comment, if 50% of boards haven't had any sort of discussion about AI, I would encourage them to at minimum talk to your executive teams about what you have done so far, what you're doing today and what you're planning to do tomorrow. In terms of how to identify it, so obviously for your own organization, those report outs from your executive team should help you understand the ways in which it's being utilized. In terms of as, as sort of a layperson or a consumer kind of out in the world, how would you know? It can be very difficult to identify. And in some ways, many of the historical use cases are sort of so well ingrained in our lives that we don't even realize that there is AI happening behind the scenes. So everything from, you know, the price you pay for the flights for your vacation to, you know, real-time traffic routing in your car's navigation system, all of those have machine learning and AI components behind the scenes, right? But it's very seamless to you as a consumer. On the generative AI side, this is a sort of a developing area and one that folks I've been talking to in the space are really grappling with around how do you identify when something is like a deep fake or um, you know, made up information. And especially as kind of the scale and sophistication of that those made up pieces of content, those deep fakes, right? That's going to increase and we're going to start seeing a lot more of that coming through. It's really, really hard. So this is not an easy problem to solve and there is no simple solution. A couple of organizations I've talked to, uh, one who works in the defense industry said, you know, this is something where they're trying to take traditional approaches and really expand the sophistication as well as the scale of the monitoring and sort of identification of the potential for misinformation and deep fakes. Another said there's a company that's starting to do this, but what they're doing is actually bringing together different kinds of expertise to try to solve this in more creative ways. So they're bringing together traditional data science AI experts who have deep expertise from the crafting of algorithms like this and how the mechanics work behind the scenes. 
and they're partnering those folks with people from the entertainment and film industry. The people who understand film editing incredibly deeply have been doing this for decades, right? Creating of special effects or modifications and bringing those two disciplines together to say, are there ways that we can start better identifying at least the risk of a deep fake um, when we're bringing together those disparate types of expertise and the very different perspectives they come with. So to me, that's really interesting. And I think sort of alludes to that when we're talking about these very complex problems, and, and this should resonate with everybody because I think it's true across many other things we've seen, like some of the topics you alluded to, um, complex problems require input and perspectives from a diverse range of viewpoints and experiences, right? That's what gets you to better solutions. And I, I very much believe that's true for this case as well. Yeah, I, I love that idea of, of human-based expertise, especially deep expertise within a process or an industry or you know a set of analytics to be able to kind of ferret out um, those machine-based um, outcomes. Just as an example, as, as I'm a, a person who's a creative writer, I can tell the difference between an AI-generated text and human-generated text, but those those markers are, are very subtle. It might be you know the, the overuse of a passive verb or um, missing punctuation or uh, incomplete thoughts or sentences. Uh, and sometimes the human error is actually the, the thing that is the signal versus the kind of the automated perfect outcome that, that AI can deliver. So I love that. And it, I think it is a correlated um, example, especially with, with boards, um, you know, who are typically not afraid to bring in outside experts if they're not well-versed in the topic. Um, that's not an unknown process and, and board governance to bring in the expert, to, to read in the rest of the board and the directors on what are the risks, what are the, uh, the hallmarks of this technology, and then how it will impact the organization. Um, you mentioned movies, you mentioned property and casualty insurance. I, I'm really curious, just based on you've been on um, at the kind of the, the, the leading front of AI for the last 12 months. Um, what are some other examples of industries, just even if anecdotal, that are experiencing disruption or soon will? Yeah, I'd, I I think you could sort of pick any industry and and talk about use cases within just a single industry for probably an hour. So I don't think there's a shortage. And I, <laughs> I, I guess what I'd say concisely is I have yet to come across an industry that won't be impacted or isn't being impacted. So I'll come back to a couple mm -hmm. of the themes again. Of So one is I, I really do think we're at this tipping point around being able to get value from large volumes of unstructured data. So we've talked mostly today about text, but that's starting to extend to image and other kinds of media as well. Um, and so I think that's one where we're gonna see a lot more of that coming into play, especially with this democratization and less of a need for large budgets and large teams to help enable those capabilities. So any organization, any industry where, where there's large volumes of unstructured information, which is almost everybody, um, is gonna be an area. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another is we're seeing more and more within um, highly regulated industries and some of the executives I've spoken to in financial services, I think in some ways get frustrated by the hype cycle, right? There's a sense if you listen to a lot of the mainstream headlines that this is all new and nobody really knows what to do with it. And when I talk to executives in financial services, you know, they say to me, they're like, Megan, we've been doing this for decades. We work in a highly regulated space. We know how to talk to our regulators about it. We've been using this maybe just in certain areas of the business, um, but we've been doing this a long time. So I think we're seeing more sort of broadening of that. And I hope more folks from those highly regulated spaces will share some of that experience they have, because I don't think we're hearing enough from those spaces um, in the conversation around AI. So I think uh, related spaces like healthcare, right? They're grappling with a lot of this. How do you do this? How do you incorporate this into, you know, everything from diagnostics to patient safety to just core operations, right? And there's a lot of use cases in, in the operations space. So I, I think everybody's still grappling with how do you um, find the right places? How do you balance those risk um, areas against the opportunity. And obviously that comes back to 
the risk tolerance of the organization itself. Um, and to your earlier comment, right, this isn't the first time we've grappled with significant disruption. So one of the things I suggest to boards of directors is to ask yourselves and reflect back on what was your last significant disruption? So it could have been the internet or it could have been even just the move to cloud computing and, and reflect mm -hmm. back on that. Did you move quickly enough or did you move too slowly? Did you um, find something out too late that you wish you had known at the start? Kind of that after action review and how should that inform the ways you might wanna think about these capabilities today? How should that inform how quickly you move now? Uh, and what kinds of expertise you need to bring in to help you get started and figure out, you know, how to how to maximize your chances for success and minimize the downside risk. Yeah, that's great. And then so to take it in the next part of our conversation, you know, obviously the, the regulatory and compliance uh, factors are, are, are weighted heavily in, in especially in regulated industries and their boards. Um, you, you mentioned um, just kind of asking those those interrogatives that, that can help set the, the, the mood or the, uh, the strategic direction for the board. I'm curious if you feel there's already any examples of um, kind of policies or, or ethical standards that, that boards should look to. Uh, we certainly have an example on our side that I can share with you, but I'm curious if you have any, any outside expertise or, or resources that um, boards and their directors can look at to start um, kind of framing their thinking around AI. Yeah. So a couple, a couple of thoughts here. So one is um, for boards of directors, you likely have some risk management frameworks that you have used in the past or you are currently using today. Um, from conversations that I've had, I think many of those can just be adapted slightly for AI capabilities. You don't have to start wholesale from scratch, in my view. Um, what you might want to do is say, are there some new risks that aren't encompassed by this framework, because fundamentally the kinds of risks we're talking about aren't new to organizations, right? When we're thinking about um, unfair treatment, privacy, uh, regulatory compliance, right? Those are all things that everybody's very familiar with. And so you, you should have some frameworks that will help guide you in those areas. So there really aren't many new risks with, with AI capabilities. They're really evolutions of existing risks. One newer one that I would highlight is the ethical and responsible use around what goes into your AI models. So we've seen lawsuits pop up from you know, book authors and um, you know, media image generation companies, right, photography companies, things like that, saying, hey, wait a second, I have copyright over my material and you're using my copyrighted material without permission to train your models. So there's obviously other parts of this as well, but that risk is a little bit different to say, are we ethically sourcing the data that we're using either through third parties, right? Through something like a chat GPT tool um, or with what we're doing internally and how we're crafting models today. So that's one that I would highlight as might be a little bit new and different, but the bulk of the risks are really ones that should be relatively easy adapted to the existing risk frameworks that you have. Um, the other sort of side of this is for executive teams in some of these highly regulated industries, they already have a lot of this sort of muscle built right around chief risk officers, mm -hmm. compliance teams, all of that. So many of them are in some ways a step ahead because again, this isn't new to them. They've been talking about these topics. And so for them, it's probably small adjustments. For companies that really haven't, where, where this hasn't been a, a big part of their thinking and they don't have as much bench strength here, I think building those partnerships and looking to bring in experts who have come from some of those more highly regulated industries can be really helpful. Um, because I, I hear a lot from the less regulated industries where they feel like they're starting from scratch. They feel like it's a wild west. And, and in my view, that's just not the case. And, I, and I, I don't think you should be starting from scratch and you shouldn't have to start alone. So I think that bringing in experts and looking to adjacent industries who have more experience grappling with this can be really useful in framing your thinking around how you wanna build your risk frameworks and how you wanna manage the risk appropriately. That's great. And yeah, one of the one of the frameworks that, that we've discovered or, or implemented within an organization itself is 
uh, Microsoft's um, six pillars of responsible AI. And I'll just read them, but they don't seem that far afield from what you would normally contemplate in any kind of strategic decision. It's fairness, reliability and safety, privacy and security, inclusiveness, transparency, accountability. Uh, all these things should be driving uh, your business decisions already. It's just applying that lens to AI in a sense. Yeah. And I think for a lot of um, uh, board, board directors, I think it's um, understanding what are some of the questions sort of one level or two levels below that, that you should be asking. Uh, and that's where some of this sort of, you know, kind of foundational uh, conversation can be really helpful of what are the kind of 10 or 20 questions that you should be asking your executive teams and where you should be reflecting on what you know your competitors or adjacent industries are doing. So that can be helpful because I totally agree the topics aren't new, but the way to frame some of the questions to, to really dig in um, doesn't require deep expertise in AI, but just knowing right the right sets of questions to ask, I do think is important because there are some nuances. This is like AI is complicated, right? There's no way around that. So. Yeah. And when I think about that, especially around the, the topics of, you know, fairness and, and um, reliability and inclusiveness, it's I always think it's important to note that these are, you know, these large language models and generative AI are, are built by humans. It's it's an automated system. It's automated intelligence, artificial intelligence uh, by by virtue that it's built by human. There are some certain biases and, and prejudice uh, built into those models um, just because, you know, maybe that data set that it learned from wasn't, you know, hundred percent clean. There's no such thing as a hundred percent clean data set. Um, but it's, it's kind of spitting our own biases and, and, uh, maybe prejudicial thinking back to us. Uh, do you have, do you think about that or do you, do you warn others about, you know, th those types of more nuanced factors? Yeah, absolutely. I spend a lot of time thinking about that and, and sort of back to my comments about where I'm seeing some companies move too quickly and some too slowly, um, I think that plays in here where uh, I do think there's a lot of, um, you know, ways to sort of think about this very thoughtfully. So I've, I've seen, uh, you know, software, enterprise software companies sort of launch announcements about, oh, we've built generative AI into our, our software. Um, and I have a bit of a pause to say, are you just automating and encoding the biases into the process, right? Are you, did you just make that, that old process fast and easy, or did you actually take the time to make it better, right? And, and to me, that's really mm -hmm. critically important um, for most, almost every use case. I've seen HRIS systems and human capital management systems do this. And that always gives me pause because it's really hard to do this well with people data for many, many reasons. Um, but there's a lot of potential for bias to come through. And you do need to, to sort of move very slowly in some ways up front as you're thinking about the data that you're putting into the system and how you're building, testing, and validating the system to make sure that you didn't just make a biased process fast and easy, right? But you're actually making things better, right? You're actually using these capabilities to improve the way that you do your work. So yes, absolutely. I spent a lot of time thinking about this and talking to people about it because there are some nuances right around how to do that and, and do it well. And to your point, there's no perfection um, but I don't think the right answer is to move quickly and just encode what you've always done without at least taking pause and saying, is there a way to do this better? And is there a lot of risk if we just make this existing process fast and easy? Mm -hmm. And I, I love in your in your answer there that you brought up the, the idea that the, um, this isn't a, a one way street, so to speak, is that you're you're querying a model, uh, you're you're giving it prompts, and then you're, you're, you're uh, intaking the responses from the model. Uh, but most people, especially as it's more publicly accessible and almost anybody can use these features for you know, $30 a month, uh, is that all the information, the data that you're inputting in that prompt is, is getting fed back into the model. Um, so in some ways you could be risking your data governance policy or data governance strategy, uh, exposing IP, exposing PII, those types of things, is there a, a word of warning there that you would share with, with uh, organizations or individuals about using these tools? Yeah, absolutely. So, so sort of, I'll say two things. So yes, there's potential for quite a bit of risk and you need to be 
uh, reading more terms of use and privacy policies than you probably have before, but you need to be really reading those closely. The second part is I really encourage organizations, to your point, because of the sort of widespread availability of some of these tools, I don't think the right answer is to say no one can use it for anything ever, right? And nobody within an organization can touch this stuff because I think I think you're setting yourself up for, you know, having people use it and you just don't know about it, right? Which is a worse place to be. So I think finding some happy medium around, can you find a use case or two that is very low risk, where the input data is not proprietary, no PII, no red data, um, where people have the ability to play around and try it? Um, Because we do want people to learn more about how these tools operate we want them to see some of the hallucinations so they know not to just blindly trust what comes out of it. Um, we want to sort of train people and get them uh, comfortable with what these tools can do, right? And, and sort of break apart some of the fear people have. So I think finding ways to do it in your organization that fall within the, ga- the guardrails and within your risk tolerance um, is something that I encourage organizations to do. But yes, to come back to your point about the, the risk. So yes, absolutely. You need to be very careful to understand the terms of service, the terms of use, and the privacy policies of the specific tools and the specific ways you're using them, right? Because many of those terms vary based on sort of public open access versus an API versus you know an enterprise license, what have you. And you need to be partnering with your legal teams to help you sort of interpret what those are uh, and figure out what to do about them. And with some level of monitoring, because we've seen a number of these tools and organizations change their terms very frequently, sort of more frequently than I think most of us are used to. Um, And it's not just the generative AI tool providers directly but it's sort of, unfortunately, it's, it's added complexity because it's all of the other tools that we're using as organizations. Um, so even some of your, your video conferencing and online meeting tools, they too are changing their terms of service because they are starting to incorporate AI. And they may be using your meeting data in ways that you're not comfortable with. So I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want to sort of freak anybody out. But this is... This is complicated, and and as everybody is trying to figure out how to incorporate these capabilities into their product offerings, I think we're going to continue to see examples where people trip across something that they weren't aware of. So the the earlier you can engage your legal team and get good guidance and then monitor how some of those terms change over time, the better off you'll be. Um, but for organizations, I wouldn't lock, my guidance would not be to sort of do nothing and lock it down and not let anybody do anything, but try to find mm-hmm. one or two places where people can experiment and they can do it safely and with the appropriate guardrails in place. Yeah, I, I love that idea of appropriate guardrails and then just the, the thought of, you know, data privacy and, and regulations like GDPR. <clears throat> my thought there is that um, one of the, the kind of foundational things about um, some of those data privacy controls is that um, whether or not you hold the data or you're, uh, you're processing it through a third-party provider, you're still liable for that, that data transfer even to a third-party provider, uh, which in, in many cases could be that, that chat GPT experience or another AI tool. Um, I, I also love the, the fact that it's, you're, you're starting with the, the best starting point is just awareness. You know, what is it? How is it impacting our business? You know, what are the, the guardrails that we need to set in place so we're not violating privacy standards or compliance standards? Um, before we get into what I, I think is the the, the the last part of our conversation about, um, you know, how boards can react to and, and address these issues, uh, I just wanted to key in on hallucinations. So for anybody listening in the audience that's not aware of what an AI hallucination is, I think it's just a, a really interesting thing that makes me feel like I'm living in the future when we're talking about robot hallucinations. What is an AI hallucination? Yeah, so it's really when it when the output from the tool is effectively bad information in some way. Um, and there's lots of examples that have you know sort of shown up in the news of where you might ask a very straightforward math question, right? Things that are completely factual, where there is only one right answer. 
and you get an answer back that is incorrect. Um, some of the ways some of these tools operate uh, is to provide answers in a language style and structure that comes across as highly confident. And that's part of the piece that I think has tripped up people is that it's, it sounds like it knows what it's saying. It doesn't, right? There's no sentient tool out there. Underneath the hood, what these tools are doing is they're predicting the next word or the next phrase based on all the ways similar answers have been given in the past, right, to similar kinds of questions and conversations. So it's really a prediction and it's predicting what that next set of things should be. Um, but that means those predictions have some level of uncertainty in them. And there are definitely times where, you know, and you can, you know, sort of search for this and find some fun and, and sort of amusing examples where the answers are wildly off and not at all, right, accurate or appropriate to the question. So you do have to be really careful with that. And many of the tool providers are doing work to try to figure out how to identify hallucinations, how to reduce the rates of frequency. I know a number of them are also starting to encode the ability to produce sources. So you can ask and say, don't just give me the answer, give me the sources for where you came up with this answer. Now, you still have to check the sources because we've seen some instances where people have walked into, say, a court of law and quoted uh, case history that turned out to be completely fabricated. So you have to be careful about this. Um, but there are there there's this is an evolving space. Right. And there's a lot that will continue to change and shift here. Um, but this is one that a lot of the tool providers are trying to wrangle with and figure out how to solve. As users, we just need to be aware that that's a clear possibility and not solely rely on the output without some validation and cross-check um, for it. And, and that's where many of the early use cases we're seeing, and you talked about how you've done some of this, Josh, is in draft content creation, right? So I'm not using tools mm -hmm. to say, give me factual answers to a question. I'm using the tools mainly to say, I have an outline for an article help me craft how I might want to structure, you know, the paragraphs if I have a 1500 word limit, right? I'm still then writing mm -hmm. and editing and making modifications, but I can get some sort of early start to draft some of that content. And that's much sort of, to me, a much safer use case because you're still the primary creator in the final output. And you're just using this as a bit of an accelerator to sort of get off of a blank page. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, and I feel like you you've been monitoring my my AI usage because that is a perfect <laughs> use case. There. Uh, but I love the idea, and I, I think it really simplifies it for a lot of people. Is that it's uh, it's a it's a computer or a, a you know an automated system trying to make its best guess at what the best answer is to your prompt. It's not necessarily accurate or true, or you know, uh, it's not verifying it's on its own. It's it's essentially making a best guess based on what it knows or what it's seen in, in trends and analysis there. Um, so to wrap things up, I'm really curious about, we talked about bringing in outside experts, having a growing awareness of, of just AI usage and, and what those impacts could be to your model. In that boardroom itself, if you're an experienced board member, um, who should be reporting either the monitoring or the standard setting or the, the policy making uh, who's the, the the best individual contributor to to provide that information to the board in your experience? Yeah, so so I don't have a black and white answer because I don't think it is a single person, and I don't think it is the same person necessarily in in all organizations. So, mm -hmm. I I think again, complex problems need a diversity of of perspectives and experiences to give the best information. And I don't think this is any different. So um, in some organizations that, that I've been a part of or partnered with, this has come through like the CIO or the CTO as kind of the primary person responsible. In other organizations where AI is really ingrained in the business directly, um, so that could be an insurance company or it could be you know, a product, a software company, right, where the, the core product is AI, um, you see that core responsibility sit with 
the business unit head, right? And that could be your chief underwriting officer or your chief product officer in those two examples. I think the other piece is you need that that lens around um, information security, around uh, you know helping facilitate compliance with emerging regulation. So again, you need a cross-functional set of experts providing input. So I think it really depends on what are the questions that the board is asking, what information do they need, um, and then sort of pulling in the right sets of experts to at least contribute to those reports that the boards are getting. Um, I think a question board uh, boards of directors can be asking is around, um, you know, when you when you're getting a report saying here's what we have, asking the question how do you know. Right, which I know is a question mm-hmm. boards are always asking about many things. Um, but how do you know? And sort of drilling in so that you're really getting to the core of, you know, if this is a nuance around um, copyright infringement risk of input data to a model, did you actually go to the team that built that model to understand, right? Is that where that information is coming from? Or is it coming from a completely separate part of the business that just doesn't have deep insight into? you know, sort of your phrase, how the sausage is made, right? So I think that, I I don't think it's a simple answer, um, unfortunately, but I think it's figuring out who are the right people for your organization and for where you are on your AI journey. Mm -hmm. And and to that point, this is not a a new set of problems in terms of governance, risk, and compliance. You know, many organizations, ours included, have uh, multiple GRC analysts, a whole team of GRC analysts uh, to make sure that that compliance is up to date. Um, This is probably a harder uh, question to to answer as well. You know, with with the the frequency of the headlines and the mainstream media, how frequently should the the board be hearing about AI, either from the, uh, you know, the, the technology committee or the GRC? officer or their, their CISO, how, how frequently would you recommend that they, they get an update on the state of AI? So the short answer is it depends. And then within that, I think there's sort of two parts to my answer. So one is answering your question specifically. And then the other is how can boards uh, themselves try to stay up to date on what's happening, right? Which is a little bit broader question, but I think closely related to what you're articulating. So to your question, uh, it depends. And it depends on how much are you doing with AI? How much do you plan to do with AI? Um, how much are your competitors doing, right? How much of this is a threat to your organization and to your business model and to your competitive standing? Um, how much are regulations shifting that impact your organization? Um, so it depends on all sort of the factors of around all the topics we've touched on. And what does that then tell you about the frequency with which you should be getting information? Um, the other piece is there may be one-offs that need to happen as well. So we've seen uh, some headlines that have kind of thrown people at times there might be an urgent question that the board has or an urgent issue that arises within the organization. And so there may need to be a one-off uh, report out for you know, kind of a narrow um, issue or topic that's, that's more urgent, right? That really needs to be addressed in between you know, the regular report outs. Um, but I think that that frequency answer really depends on the organization, where you are, where you're going, Um, and what your competitors are doing as well. The related question of how do you just generally stay abreast of of the changes, because as you said, this is a a very quickly evolving space and a lot is happening. Again, the short answer is no one person can know all of this and possibly stay up to date on everything. So I think some of it is a bit of divide and conquer. So who within the board has areas of expertise that are relevant, and and it's not just technology. Um, I think one topic we haven't touched on is talent and talent strategy. So there's there's a place for that as well within the board discussion. And so kind of that divide and conquer of who's going to pay attention to um, the evolving regulation uh, framework, who's going to pay attention to um, the talent side of it, right? And, And kind of that so that no one person is trying to grapple with everything. So that's one piece. 
The other is that bringing experts in when you need them, either for a narrow deep dive into a particular topic or at the start or throughout to just help you get comfortable and coaching you through what are some of the questions to ask your executive teams. Um, so that would be sort of idea two. And then the third is a bit more broad in general, but for myself, I found learning just generally from a really broad range of sources and on a wide range of topics has really helped me better identify potential issues and risks and raise those. You know, so we've talked about a really wide range of industries today, a really wide range of applications today. Neither you nor I has deep expertise in all of the industries we've touched on, but because of that broad learning, we have awareness of what's going on in the film industry as it relates to this or in national security as it relates to this. And so that kind of just broad learning, I think, is critical uh, because it'll help you see patterns and identify potential risks that are more nuanced and may not be as obvious if you're just really solely focused on, on keeping up to date with kind of that very narrow definition of AI. Yeah, I, I love that that idea of a holistic awareness and, and making those those cross industry connections. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for your time today. I think this has been really informative and illuminating for me and, and the audience as well. Uh, I'll wrap up with the last question, which is our standard question on inside the boardroom. How did you get your first board seat? Yeah, so the first nonprofit board role I got uh, came through a network connection, right? Which I'm sure is common in many people's stories. I had done a, a nonprofit board boot camp, so sort of a two-day training intensive with the Chicago Foundation for Women probably a decade ago. And a few years later, someone I had met through that organization reached out and said, I know a board that's looking for new board directors. I think you'd be amazing. I think the mission aligns to your areas of interest. Um, and that introduction led to the board role with the Chicago Literacy Alliance. Um, the advisory board roles have, have too been through network connections and um, some through accelerator programs where it's a little bit easier to sort of dip your toe in the water and get started working with startup organizations and VC-backed institutions. Um, and then others, again, have kind of come through networking where people have tapped me and said, Megan, your areas of expertise, I think, would be really valuable for what's going on in this organization. Would you come join us? So, Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been fun, but I think I think the common answer is network. Yeah, but it's such it's it's an interesting parallel example of uh, coming across industry uh, expertise and, and just making those connections and applying uh, what might be outside thinking to a new role. So I, I, I love that. So thank you for that, Megan. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and uh, you can find Megan on LinkedIn. We'll include her link in the show notes if you want to follow up and get more information from her on AI and how it's impacting the boardroom. Uh, with that, thank you. Thanks so much, Josh. 